The scripture for today's reading, for today's sermon, comes from Mark 10, 1 through 12. The word of God speaks to us. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Ann. Hey, guys, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Obviously, this is going to be just a little light sermon today. Just a little fun one. Hey, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name's Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. In 2005, my wife Nancy and I were called by the Lord to plant this church. We started it in our living room, and I'm really thankful to be here with you guys today. Uh, before we dive into this text, you guys can start finding Mark chapter 10. We're going to walk through these verses. But before we get there, um, I want to mention something that's a gospel opportunity that God's opened up for us as a church. One of the things that's really powerful in studying scripture and looking at the history of the church is that when the church gets it right, like when we're really believing the teaching of Jesus and the personal work of Jesus, the church is not simply an internally focused community caring for its own. But when the church gets it right, we're actually people that see all of those in our city and all of those around the globe as our neighbor, loving and caring for others. And when the church has really got that right, the church has been willing to help people of different faiths and different backgrounds to care for the poor, to care for the sick, to care for the dying, to care for widows and refugees. And right now, in this particular moment, something really amazing is happening. Though God's called his church to go to the nations, there's moments where God brings the nations to us. And right now, you may or may not be aware of the fact that there are somewhere around a thousand families that are getting settled in Oklahoma City as refugees from Afghanistan. These are men and women that have lost everything. These are men and women that are moving to a culture where they don't know the language, they don't have relatives, they're by themselves. And I want you to think about what that would feel like to see your country torn by war and then to be relocated with no roots to start over in a place that you know very little about. And so as a church, we want to take the command of Jesus to love our neighbors really seriously. And we want to take the command of God to love the nations really seriously. And with that in mind, um, we've committed as a church to set aside $100,000 to help refugees resettle in Oklahoma City, to help them get connected into community, to help them learn the language, to make sure that they're getting medical care, to make sure that they have roofs over their heads and furniture, and that they're getting connected with people that will be good neighbors to them and help answer really interesting questions like, what does y'all mean in Oklahoma, <laughs> right? And, and so uh, that's starting immediately. We're jumping in this week. The first few families are already here. And uh, by God's grace, we were able to hire a great young man that has a heart for the nations named Joshua Williams. And Josh is going to be leading our effort to coordinate community groups and to help other churches jump in to care for refugees. And I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, the majority of these men and women are Muslim. And if this is just an opportunity to show the love of Jesus through practical good deeds, then praise be to God. But we're also really hoping that relationships are built and the gospel is shared and that people get to know Jesus. So uh, thanks for your prayers around that. I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me. We both need prayer for this text today. 
All right, so uh, join with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wisdom, for the abundance of your mercy. Thank you that we got to just sing about your reckless love. And I know that that word in that song stresses out neatniks, but your love really was reckless. It was reckless in its willingness to subject your son to shame and suffering to make a place for us. And it's crazy that there's ways in which your love towards us feels reckless in that you're willing to take us to really hard and painful places that hurt us and wound us to open us up to who you really are. Thank you that you're not a God that's obsessed with safety and comfort. Thank you that you're a God that cares about transformation and eternity. So would you help us today? And uh, would you be our teacher, Holy Spirit? We need you so bad. We always need you, but in a place like this that's so countercultural and seems so offensive, would you please teach us? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Hey, so today we're in Mark chapter 10. One of the reasons we believe in preaching through entire books of the Bible is that it keeps you from skipping the passages that you don't want to talk about. It forces you to not be a coward in the pulpit and to actually unpack the full counsel of God's word. And today is one of those sermons where we get to talk about the teachings of Jesus in the gospel of Mark and through his apostles on divorce and remarriage. And I want to start by saying that marriage is a really big part of the story of God. Marriage was instituted by God in the very beginning. Marriage was, in the very beginning, attacked by the serpent, and marriage fell into bondage to sin. It's been said that marriage is the central human relationship and organizing principle of culture. And whether you're married or single, and we're so blessed to have so many married couples and so many singles as a church doing life together, whether you're married or single, you have to acknowledge just how profoundly you've been shaped by marriage. All of us, for both good and ill, are shaped by our parents, our family of origin. Marriage is going back three or four generations are still having an effect on who we are as human beings. And in the midst of the ways that we've been shaped by marriage, marriage is a place where many of us today are experiencing deep desire and hope and longing and joy and delight and communion. And in the very same room, in a way that's dizzying to any human being that only God himself has the capacity to stand in the midst of, in this room there's also betrayal and loss and pain, and wounding, and endings, and dreams that didn't work out, and all the ways in which the loss of a marriage becomes as painful as the loss of a loved one to death. And in the midst of all of that, the good and the bad, we as a church are a church of singles and married people and divorced people and people with blended families trying to follow Jesus. And in the center of this church, at the very center of our worship and our practice and our belief is not the institute of marriage. We don't worship marriage. At the center of this church is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Jesus Christ, who's the beginning and end. Jesus Christ, who can turn mourning into dancing. Jesus, who can raise the dead. Jesus, who can replace our ashes with something beautiful. And so right now, as we talk about this topic and as we sit at our master's feet and ask him what he has to say to us about marriage and divorce and remarriage, we don't just come to Jesus for abstract principles. We come to Jesus as the very hope of our lives, that he's good and he's proven himself through his death and his resurrection that we can trust him and that we can take his words seriously and that we can follow him even when he leads to places that we'd rather not go. So today, as we talk about divorce and remarriage, many things are in this room and many things are in our culture. Our culture seems to see marriage itself as either a comedy or a tragedy. It's either an antiquated joke that we're tempted to mock, or it's a tragedy that we are desiring to avoid all stick and no carrot. 
And in our particular moment, the majority of Americans will marry, although 50% of those marriages will end in divorce. And of those that divorce and remarry, roughly 70% of those second marriages will also end in divorce. And roughly the same percentages hold true for those that claim to be followers of Jesus and those that are not followers of Jesus. And in our particular moment, divorce has become an artifact of the way that we see humanity and marriage itself. In 1969, Governor Ronald Reagan signed the no-fault divorce bill into law in California. And by 1980, divorce culture was rampant. It was the peak of divorce shaping an entire generation. Many of us that are Gen X, my generation, came of age in that moment where we were really cynical and marriages were falling apart all around, of us, all around us. Many in this room have experienced the collapse of your parents' marriages. Today, divorce rates are slightly lower than they were in the 1980s, although I don't know that that's something that we can particularly celebrate. I think that's in large part due to the fact that we're terrified and cynical about marriage. And in many ways, we've replaced marriage with cohabitation. And so today as we come to Jesus and we sit at his feet and we ask him to teach us, he's going to say things that seem radical. He's going to say things that seem countercultural. He's going to say things that shake us. And what I want you to get today is that this talk is not going to answer all of your questions. It's going to create more questions. I've got a good friend who pastors a sister church in Omaha, Nebraska. And this week as I was preparing to preach this sermon, I read their paper on marriage and divorce. They're really good at writing papers. They're smart guys up there. And as I read their paper on marriage and divorce, what they said was that the goal of that paper was to be more of a compass than a roadmap. And that's the hope of this sermon. This sermon is not a roadmap that's going to give you the exact information you need to move from point A to point B. It's not going to answer every question that you've got about your particular circumstances and your particular background and what you've gone through in particular. But as a compass, this sermon has the ability to come under the teaching of Jesus and set us in a biblical direction, which though it won't answer every question, it will invite us to with open Bibles and relationship with pastors and elders who are called by God to guard the doctrine of the church and shepherd believers, and side by side with fellow members in Christian community, we're invited to discern the will of God for our varied, complex, and unique situations, and to follow Jesus. So take your Bible, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. I want to start by saying something really obvious, but it's profound in its impact. And that is that Jesus saves and teaches, and he teaches and he saves. Look what happens in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, this is really important. I want you to see just how crazy this is because Jesus came to do the work of salvation. He came to do what no human being could ever do. He came to atone for our sins on his cross, to carry all of our sin, he that knew no sin, to become sin. Our crimes against God and our crimes against each other were counted as Jesus's. And all of those crimes were placed on him and he bore the wrath of God in our place. He was laid in the tomb. He was dead for three days. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And at the very center of Christian worship and Christian practice is the gospel of Jesus. That good news that he came to save sinners, to reconcile us to our Father, to get us to God because we couldn't get to him on our own, to bring us home. But here's what I need you to understand. Jesus didn't show up with a closed mouth and go directly to the cross. He thought it was important to take three years, as was his custom, to open his mouth and to teach. To teach his disciples who would become apostles, who would lay the doctrinal foundations of the church. And what we see in this is that as Jesus saves and as Jesus teaches, 
the false dichotomy of easy believism and cheap consumer Christianity gets exposed. Because what so many of us have been taught and what so many of us have believed is that we can disregard the teachings of Jesus in receiving the saving work of Jesus. That we can divorce the two from one another, that we can play them against each other. But what we see, and this is so important, is that in his saving work, Jesus rescues us from sin and death. And in his teaching work, he invites us into his kingdom to be formed over time as his people to reflect his glory. And as such, we as followers of Jesus need to delight in the saving work of Jesus because if all he did was teach, it would simply be heavy burdens that would crush our souls. But as our Savior, who gives us a new heart, who puts a heart of flesh in our chest instead of a heart of stone, Jesus who rescues and saves and delivers is also Jesus who invites us to sit at his feet and learn how to live, to obey him, to say yes to him, to hear his word and to be shaped by it over time. This is why in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus sends the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that he commanded us. We are saved to be a kingdom of priests, to sit at the feet of Jesus and grow in obeying him. And as such, we need to understand that in the teachings of Scripture, there are both mysteries and instructions. And as Protestants, we have a hard time with both of those things. <laughs> the teaching of Jesus around marriage and divorce includes both mystery and instruction. Let me try to unpack the difference between the two, because we need both. Mystery invites us to beholding and being amazed by the mystery of God and what he's done. Mystery invites us to awe and worship. Let me give you an example. The incarnation is perhaps the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. The fact that God the Son, the uncreated creator, the word that made everything, equal with the Father, emptied himself in the incarnation, not by ceasing to be God, but by adding to himself full humanity. The mystery of the incarnation is that in the womb of Mary, God who created all things was in his mother's womb being shaped as his bones were formed. 100% God and 100% man. The mystery of the incarnation is that God the Son was sustained at his mother's breast while he simultaneously sustained all things. The incarnation shows us that wisdom incarnate as a child had to learn and grow. And that's mystery. We have clear doctrine about the incarnation that's true and it's good, but it's so miraculous, it's so much bigger than us that it's supposed to lead us to experience what Job did at the end of Job where we just put our hands over our mouths and we just worship and we say to God, hey, your ways are higher than my ways. I love you, I wanna trust you, I don't fully understand this, but it's beautiful. There's mystery, but there's also instruction. Instruction is the teaching of scripture to help us know how to live. There's instruction about marriage and family and money and relationship and forgiving our enemies. And what we can often do in our desire to avoid instruction is we can just call everything mystery. We can act as if Jesus hasn't been clear about what he expects from the ways that husbands are to love wives and wives are to receive husbands. And we can pretend that all that stuff is really obscure. And what we see in Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce is that there's both mystery and instruction together, and the proper response to both is repentance and worship and joy. And so take your Bible, follow with me. I want to show you both mystery and instruction from the mouth of Jesus on marriage. Verse 2, and the Pharisees came up in order to test him. Stop there for just a second. Let's try to unpack what's happening. Um, as usual, the Pharisees are trying to have a gotcha moment with Jesus. And the Pharisees in this particular moment are testing Jesus around probably two things. We don't know 100%, but we have good evidence that there's probably two things happening. 
First of all, Jesus is moving back towards the region where Herod was ruler. And if you remember the story, if you've been with us for the last several months, as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, what we saw is that Herod and his wife Herodias were married after a sinful, unlawful divorce. And they were living in adultery. And John, this prophet, this forerunner of Jesus, had called out the sin of Herod and Herodias. And the result of him calling out that sin was that he got arrested and eventually he got his head cut off. So it's likely that part of the testing of the Pharisees is that they're hoping that Jesus is going to do what John did and rebuke Herod and Herodias in hopes that Jesus would be silenced by being arrested and maybe even killed by Herod. In addition, they're probably hoping that Jesus is going to cut against the grain of one of the most popular teachings of the day, the teaching of the school of Hillel. Now, uh, Hillel was a rabbi, and Hillel's school had this teaching on marriage and divorce that a man could divorce his wife for anything that displeased them. So literally, they taught that if a wife burned dinner and the husband decided he didn't want to be married to her anymore, he could give her a certificate of divorce and that would not be sinful before God. And it's likely that the Pharisees in that cultural moment are hoping that Jesus would cut against the grain of that prevalent teaching and the rampant divorce that was happening in both the Jewish world and the Greek and Roman world and thus lose credibility with his followers. Now, I want you to see what Jesus does because what's wild, and this is in step with all of the New Testament teaching on marriage, when Jesus teaches on marriage, he doesn't teach from a first century vantage point or from a 21st century vantage point. Jesus doesn't talk about marriage. And by the way, the Apostle Paul and Peter, when they address marriage, also don't talk about marriage controlled by the cultural norms of their day. What Jesus is going to do is really different. He is going to pull back from the first century and pull back from the 21st century, and he's going to go back to the very beginning. He's going to have a conversation about the mystery of marriage, and he's going to instruct around marriage, not based on human culture, but based on God's original intent for what marriage is to be. Now look what he says, starting in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, this is stuff that you've probably heard in wedding vows. And you can hear these words and not feel like they're mysterious at all. But let me try to point out to you that what Jesus is saying about marriage is not beginning with instructions on better communication or a better sex life or how to raise your kids or how to overcome the challenges of budgeting. What Jesus is saying about marriage is that the starting place for understanding Christian marriage and all marriage, in fact, is that it is a profound, supernatural cosmic mystery. The fact that God made human beings male in his image and female in his image. That man by himself reflects the image of God and woman by herself reflects the image of God. And though they're equals in value, dignity, and worth, they're different, they're distinct, they're unique. And when they're brought together in marriage, the otherness of man and the otherness of woman, man being drawn to the otherness of his wife and the wife being drawn to the otherness of her husband in the covenant of marriage, this crazy thing happens both physically and spiritually that's not a contract, it's a one fleshing. It's this wild, supernatural, spiritual dynamic where they maintain their sense of identity as human beings, man and woman, but they're joined together in ways in which we don't fully understand. And the point of that union throughout the Old, Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, is to point to God's relationship with his bride Israel. That again and again, God uses marriage as a metaphor He says again and again that he, like a husband, pursues his bride Israel and that his bride Israel is not faithful to him. She keeps turning from him. A couple years ago, we walked through the book of Hosea, this crazy prophetic book. And the whole theme of that book is that God calls a prophet to marry a woman who's not true to him. 
And that woman keeps cheating on him. She has other loves and other lovers and he loves her and he keeps coming back to her and she keeps breaking his heart. And in that story, God says, that's my relationship with Israel. Like, I love you. I want you to be faithful to me. I'm gonna place my hesed on you, my covenant faithfulness, my loving kindness. And at every turn, she keeps running from him and breaking his heart. And then we get to the New Testament. What Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter five is explicit and clear. He says, the mystery is profound. Meaning marriage is not a contract. It's not a domestic partnership. It's a mystery. And the profound mystery that Paul says marriage is about is pointing to Jesus and the church. It's this union that was designed by God to point to the reality of God and his people. Therefore, listen, this is wild. Um, we're Protestants and, and not Greek Orthodox, so we don't have icons in the same way that those traditions have icons. But did you know that marriage is an icon? Marriage was designed as this icon that we would look at and have a fuller understanding of God and his people, that it would lead to worship. And that's the purpose of mystery. So let's stop here for just a second and let's acknowledge how radically different a starting place that is than our understanding of marriage. Because in our moment, I don't care how long you've been in church, whether you're a brand new Christian or you were raised in the church and you've done all the deep things of the SBC, including VBS, like whatever your background is, it doesn't really matter. The cultural view of marriage is so pervasive, it shaped you. It shaped you. And the cultural view of marriage that shaped you and me is a combination of two things that are having terrible fruit in our world. The combination of our imagination on marriage is romantic idealism and raw consumerism. Romantic idealism. What is marriage? Well, it's, it's finding your soulmate. Who would argue with that? It's finding the one and the ones out there for everybody. And if you find the one, what will happen? Well, you'll be completed You'll be transformed. You'll be changed. You'll move from being this person that can't really express yourself to this person that's fulfilled and constantly delighted, that self-actualizes and rises to a higher plane of humanity. That's the romantic ideal of marriage. And consumerism is this idea that the consumer is always right, that marriage is a contract, meaning it's something that if it doesn't fulfill that romantic ideal, it's to be discarded and replaced. It's exchangeable. In uh, Vogue, Adele was doing an interview about her filing for divorce in 2019. And uh, I want to use this line from her not to dog her, but to just say, hey, how much is this worldview inside of us? Describing her divorce, she was talking about how, man, our marriage wasn't terrible. We, we weren't abusive to each other. We were compatible in a lot of ways, but it just wasn't fulfilling. It didn't hit the romantic ideal of what we think marriage should be. And the result was to divorce. And here's what she says about it. She says, I've been on my journey to find true happiness ever since. Okay, so feel the weight of this. Like, this is the moment we live in. Marriage is this romantic ideal that's about completion and fulfillment and unending delight. And it's this consumeristic relationship that can be discarded contractually if it doesn't meet all the needs that we thought it was going to meet. And what Jesus does is so different. It's so radical. It's crazy even for Christians. What Jesus says is the beginning of marriage is not a romantic ideal or a contract It's this miraculous, powerful enactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an icon pointing to Christ in the church. It's a picture. It's a picture that manifests the mystery of God. And I just wonder if we really believe that, if that would begin to change and shift our expectations. Because certainly it's wonderful in seasons of marriage when it is fulfilling and you are communing and it is full of delight and romance and passion. And by the way, those aren't bad things. Like, who do you think invented romance? It it wasn't the romantic poets. God invented romance. He invented what a kiss feels like. And yet, listen, if we really believed where Jesus starts around marriage, we would start to see that even when those things are absent from a marriage, Whatever you're feeling or not feeling, there's something mysterious about marriage that exists beyond 
your ability to comprehend that points to something eternal and powerful. That marriage, though it will end when we die, is pointing to something that will never end, Jesus' relationship with his bride. And this leads to the instruction. So that's mystery. Let's look at instruction. Starting in verse 3, he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, this is really important. Jesus' instructions about divorce start by naming the fact that divorce was a divine concession, not the original design of marriage. Divorce is always the result of human hard-heartedness and brokenness, not the result of God's good and perfect will for our lives. Divorce comes out of the fracturing of the world. Divorce is a product of the fall. And God's concession of divorce in the Old Testament, this is really important that you get this, God's concession of divorce in the Old Testament and requiring a man to issue a certificate of divorce was about limiting the devastating fallout of the destruction of a marriage to protect those that were most at risk. Because without a certificate of divorce in that culture, in that moment, a woman, if she was divorced by her husband, would not be able to remarry and it would be very likely that she would end up with her children destitute and on her own, with no family, with no home, with no food, with no medical attention. And so God in his goodness sees the hardness of human hearts and he makes divorce as a concession, not as his ultimate will for marriage, but as a result of our hard-heartedness. Now look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay, let's talk about these hard words. First of all, you need to note that because of the spiritual and physical one fleshing that takes, that takes place within the covenant of marriage, Jesus is saying, that to break the marriage covenant and marry another is adultery in God's eyes. That husband and wife don't just sign a contract and then break the contract, but instead there was this union that happened, both body and spirit in the covenant of marriage where two became one. Therefore, marriage is both sacred and solemn. It's serious. And the point of this instruction is to let the people of God understand that marriage is to be a lifelong covenant before God and man. That's why Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I want to just note here, before we go any further, this is a moment to just make a little practical instruction for all of us that are trying to figure out how to make our married lives work. That belief that marriage is a lifelong covenant that's not to be broken is the only way to make it worth living. Because if you have an out, you will take it. You will want to get out. And I don't care how amazing you think your spouse is in this moment. I don't care how in love you are. I don't care how amazing your dating life has been, how great the honeymoon is. If you give yourself an out, there's a day coming where you'll take it. And in God's economy, here's what's counterintuitive. In God's economy, it's not passion or romance, or sexual intimacy, or friendship, or domestic partnership that sustains the covenant of marriage. In fact, it's the opposite direction. It's the covenant of marriage that sustains and renews the intimacy companionship of marriage. It's not that the fuel for the covenant, what makes the covenant count and valuable and real, is how I feel, or how my wife is feeling, or how we're experiencing one another. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's within the confines of that lifelong covenant that those feelings are going to have times where they ebb and they flow. Sometimes it's going to feel dry. Sometimes it's going to feel like a garden. And in the midst of all of those seasons of life, think about how many changes we have in one year as human beings. Our bodies changing and our relationship changing. And in the midst of all of those transitions and changes with our bodies and our emotions and our feelings, it's the covenant of marriage that creates this place where we can grow and mature and deepen, where we can experience seasons of renewal and refreshing. So 
With that in mind, based on the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus through the apostles, I can make two really bold statements, okay? This is in step with the history of the church and teaching of scripture. This is not controversial to Orthodox Christianity. We're gonna get to the controversial stuff in just a second. Okay, this is not controversial. Number one, based on the teaching of Bible and church history, we should generally oppose divorce as followers of Jesus generally oppose divorce. And number two, based on the teaching of scripture and the sanctity of marriage, we should be cautious regarding remarriage. We should generally avoid divorce and be cautious regarding remarriage. Now, let's start to transition because God is both aware and sober about the dynamics of our broken lives. He is the one that gave the Old Testament concession around divorce due to the hardness of our heart. And the teaching of scripture seems to indicate that there are times when a marriage covenant may indeed be so shattered that divorce and perhaps remarriage could be possible. And it's important for me to say that this is not agreed upon by all trusted teachers in churches. There's disagreement about this. There's things in which the Bible is really clear about marriage and there's things that are less clear. We're about to move in the territory of less clear. We as a group of pastors believe, group of elders here at Frontline Church, that divorce and remarriage may be permissible, but not required in three three instances, while also recognizing that the only clear and explicit, uncontroversial permission to remarry in Scripture is upon the death of a spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7.39. So we believe that the Bible seems to indicate that divorce and remarriage may be permissible in three circumstances. Let me give them to you. The first is in the case of adultery. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus doesn't mention any exceptions or clauses, but in Matthew 5 and Luke 19 and elsewhere in Luke, he says this, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And in Matthew 19, 9, he says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Um, Here's what I think scripture is teaching. If you go back to the Old Testament, the betrayal and the fracturing of covenant that resulted in adultery was so serious that under Mosaic law, the offending party would be under the death penalty. So it, it resulted in a death. It was that severe and extreme. And what seems to be the case in the New Testament is that there are times in which the betrayal and the breaking of a marriage covenant could perhaps free the person who's been betrayed against to both divorce and remarry. More on that in a second. Second thing that we think may be permissible grounds for divorce and possibly remarriage is the word abandonment. The word abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you should read that whole chapter as you're thinking about marriage this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's talking about being married to an unbeliever. And he says something really shocking because elsewhere he's going to say, don't be unequally yoked, meaning if you're a Christian, don't marry a non-Christian. But to Christians that are already married to non-Christians, he says, don't leave the marriage. If they're willing to stay married, you stay married. And then he says that far from the non-Christian defiling the Christian, the Christian very well may be a conduit of God's grace to the non-Christian. And then in the midst of that conversation, he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This seems to be an indicator that in the case of abandonment, in the case of a spouse Moving away. And by the way, he's talking about non believers, but isn't it the case that people that claim to be Christians that walk away from the commands and clear teachings of Jesus were called to treat as non believers, which doesn't mean anger and shame and shunning. It means we're to relate to them evangelistically. So it seems that there's grounds in the scripture that if you're abandoned by your spouse, that you have grounds for divorce and possible remarriage. Now, the last one I'll mention is abuse. Abuse. And abuse follows the same logic as abandonment. Abuse being 
the extreme version of abandonment where the absence of physical presence and support is found in the presence of violence and evil. What more shocking and visceral form of abandonment could there be than doing violence against one's spouse? Now, again, this is a compass, not a roadmap. I don't know the ins and outs of your situation. And we, as a group of pastors, would want to know the ins and outs of your situation. And what I can say really clearly is that we need a few things if we're going to wrestle with something as weighty as the sanctity of marriage and divorce and remarriage. We need open Bibles. We need teachable hearts. We need a relationship with pastors who are called to shepherd the church and protect doctrine. We need brothers and sisters in Christ. We need honesty about our own biases. Like if you're feeling in a moment where you would really like to be married to somebody else, you're probably going to see the out as way more plausible than what it might be. And we need, we need above all a desire to see Jesus as our treasure, not marriage as our treasure. So, now let me say this. Because the very purpose of marriage is about the gospel, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Our posture towards divorce and remarriage should focus on three things. And if this is the only thing you remember today, please remember this. Our posture on divorce and remarriage coming out of the grace of God in Jesus should come back to three things consistently. Number one, reconciliation whenever possible. Reconciliation whenever possible. Hey guys, the grace of God is amazing. And there are so many people in this church right now that could tell you about the wasteland that was their marriage and the ways that they had been betrayed and the heartbreak and the agony. And God did a work of miraculous resurrection and there's been reconciliation that points to the power of the gospel. Jesus can raise the dead. And our first response in the midst of difficulty in our marriage should be, hey, Father, I want to seek and I want to pursue reconciliation. Now, I say whenever possible because there's times at which the marriage can't be reconciled. There's times in which one or both spouses have been remarried. There's times in which other circumstances are at play or perhaps the offending spouse is so hard-hearted they won't even sit down or engage in counseling. But reconciliation whenever possible is the first goal. Number two, Repentance for wherever we have sinned. Repentance for where we've, where we've sinned. Um, listen, all of us are sinful people. <laughs> and it's so easy, especially with how personal marriage is, it's so easy to viscerally feel the failings of your spouse while being totally blind to your own contribution. I mean, is it not? Is that just me? Because you're looking at me like that's just me. And I kind of want to call BS on all of you right now. Because marriage is about the gospel, man, the second thing we should see in the midst of difficulty is, hey, Lord, where do you need me to repent? Where, where have I been hard-hearted? Where have I been entitled? Where have I been selfish? Where have I practiced idolatry and tried to worship marriage instead of you? And then the third thing, which is non-negotiable, the third thing is forgiveness for our spouse. And, I, and listen, I want to be really clear on this. Forgiveness is not an option for the people of God. Forgiveness is not ever justifying sinful behavior. It's not saying what a person did to you was okay. It's not pretending that the person's a better person than what they are. It's not lessening the offense that you've experienced. Forgiveness is feeling the full weight of what a person should have done for you and didn't and should not have done to you and did. Feeling the weight of all that and in light of what God's forgiven you handing it to God and letting him be the judge, releasing it to him. It's been said that unforgiveness is poisoning ourselves and hoping our enemy dies. And it's so true. It's so true. Forgiveness is not an option for the people of God. Forgiveness is our lifeblood. Recently, man, there's been moments where I've had these really dark thoughts about enemies and the thoughts have been, Lord, I want you to give them justice. Give them what they deserve. And then as soon as I say it, as soon as I think it, the Spirit of God checks me and says, hey, I didn't give you what you deserved. 
You didn't want justice, you wanted mercy. And then my prayer changes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Lord, forgive my enemies. Give my enemies mercy. Because marriage is about the gospel, reconciliation when possible should be sought. Repentance for we, where we have sinned should be engaged. And forgiveness for our spouse is mandatory. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to end knowing that this is probably going to start more conversations that it's probably raised more questions than what it's answered and just tell you, we're not going anywhere. We love you. Your pastors love you. We want to stay engaged in this conversation. If you need help, we want to help. I want to take you through seven frequently asked questions really quickly. Seven frequently asked questions on this topic that really matter. Number one, is divorce the unforgivable sin? Friends, look at me. I want everybody to see me and hear me say this. So many church cultures have rightly wanted to uphold the sanctity of marriage and they've wrongly, in response to that, made divorce the unforgivable sin. Where if you're a divorcee, it's sort of like you're wearing a scarlet D for the rest of your life. I want you to hear this so clearly. The only unforgivable sin is to harden your heart and refuse to trust in the saving work of Jesus. It's the only unforgivable sin. He forgives murder. He forgives adultery. He forgives violence. There is nothing human beings have ever done that wasn't nailed to his cross and the blood of Jesus should not be insulted by any of us thinking that our sins were too bad for his blood to atone for. The truest thing about you, the truest thing about you is not your failings and not your mistakes and not how you've been marked by the failings and mistakes of someone else, the truest thing about you is what your father says through the work of Jesus. Number two, how do I deal with the pain and betrayal of my spouse's adultery? Look, that's gonna be an ongoing process and there's a lot of answers to that and healing takes time and it's not something you can engage by yourself, but let me just start by telling you this. Your father in heaven knows what it's like to be faithful to a spouse that's adulterous. And in Jeremiah chapter three, you should read it later. God describes himself as a divorcee. So like, you're not alone. You're in pretty good company. You're in the company of the most high God if you've gone through the betrayal of adultery and you've had your heart broken. God knows what that feels like. And there's compassion and there's grace and there's presence there. Question number three, my marriage is in a bad spot. What do I do? There's probably a lot of answers to that question, but let me just start by the junk drawer catch-all. You need to ask for help. Rarely do marriages in bad spots resolve themselves on our own. We need help. We need pastors and we need friends and we need counselors. And I can promise you the pastors that are part of this church and the deacons and deaconesses of our church have gone through so many things and are so in need of God's grace. Nobody's gonna be judgy. No one's gonna out you. No one's gonna be embarrassed by what you're going through. We're gonna literally make every means at our disposal available to try to help you. Question number four, this is perhaps the most important question. I'm in an abusive relationship, what should I do? I'm in an abusive relationship, what should I do? Okay. Faithfulness to Jesus does not mean that you stay in a situation where you or your children are in danger. The two things you should do if you're in an abusive relationship in order, number one, call the authorities. And if you don't know how to do that or if you don't feel like you can do that or if you feel stuck or scared of doing that. Let us know and we'll help, you, we'll help you do that. First thing to do is call the authorities. Romans chapter 13 tells us that the civil authorities are there from God as a means of restraining evil. And if you're in danger, if your kids are in danger, please, 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 today, 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 because you may not have tomorrow, please call the authorities. Number two, please call your pastors. We love you. And we'll do everything we can possibly do to help you not fall through the cracks, to help you get support, to help you find a safe place, to help you think through what are the next steps. Please call the police and call your pastors. Now, quickly, number five, 
My spouse isn't a believer. Should I divorce him or her? We briefly covered that. The answer is no. The answer is no. If they're willing to live with you, you should be praying like crazy that God will meet them and God will save them. You should have faith for that. Number six, should I remarry? I've been divorced. Should I remarry? This is going to be the most unsatisfying answer you could possibly receive. Are you ready? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe not. What I can say with a lot of conviction and boldness is that you for sure need a lot of time. You need a lot of counsel. You need Christian pastors and Christian community to help you wrestle with. Should you be remarried? Maybe, maybe not. And this is hard to say, but in our culture, you need to hear hear me say this. Nowhere in scripture does Jesus or the apostles communicate remarriage as a right. There's times where it's right and there's times where it's permissible and there's times where it's the will of God. But it's it's not a right that we just hold and skip through the steps of wrestling with is reconciliation possible? What does repentance look like? What does forgiveness look like? And number seven, lastly, should I marry an unbeliever? Paul says, stay with an unbeliever if they're willing to stay with you if you're already married. Should I marry an unbeliever? And the answer to that unequivocally is no. Do not do that. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There is no more intimate a yoke than the profound covenant of marriage. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and I would even say, hey, if you're thinking about marrying somebody that claims to be a Christian, but no one can ever tell them no about anything, don't marry him. Seriously, don't marry him. Like if you're if you got a girl who the women in her life can never like confront her and call her out, don't marry her. And and for the lady especially, man, if you're if you're with a dude and just, he won't submit to any authority and everybody's an idiot and he knows everything. Man, don't marry that guy. It won't end well. So, I love you. And your pastors and your deacons love you. And God, more importantly, loves you. And whatever you're feeling and whatever this talk coming out of Mark chapter 10 brought to the surface, God's sufficient for these things. He's present in the midst of our questions and our anger and our laments and our longings. And uh, he's faithful to the very end. So let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would apply the words of your son Jesus across this room in every way that's needed and appropriate. Pray that you would bring your comfort and your presence and your grace to all of us. I pray that you would bring healing where we need healing and conviction where where we need conviction. I pray that we would not see marriage through the lens of romantic idealism or consumerism, but as a mysterious icon of Christ in his church. Pray that you would help us, that you would feed us today as we come to your table. In the name of Jesus, amen.